Chapter Three of the Holiday Round by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three at Play, Section One, Ten and Eight. The only event of importance last week was my victory over Henry by Ten and Eight. If you don't want to hear about that, then I shall have to pass on to you a few facts about his motor bicycle. You'd rather have the other? i thought so the difference between henry and me is that he is what i should call a good golfer and i am what everybody else calls a bad golfer in consequence of this he insults me with offers of bisques i'll have ten this time i said as we walked to the tee better have twelve i beat you with eleven yesterday thank you i said haughtily i will have ten it is true that he beat me last time but then, owing to bad management on my part, I had nine bisques left at the moment of defeat, simply eating their heads off. Henry teed up and drove a pink spot out of sight. Henry swears by the pink spot if there is anything of a wind. I use either a quo vadis, which is splendid for going out of bounds, or an ostrich, which has a wonderful way of burying itself in the sand. I followed him to the green at my leisure. Five, said Henry. Seven, said I, and if I take three bisques, it's my hole. You must only take one at a time, protested Henry. Why, there's nothing in wisdom or Baedeker about it. Besides, I will only take one at a time, if it makes it easier for you. I take one, and that brings me down to six, and then another one, and that brings me down to five, and then another one, and that brings me down to four. There and as you did the hole in five i win well of course if you like to waste them all at the start i'm not wasting them i'm creating a moral effect behold i have won the first hole let us be photographed together henry went to the next tee slightly ruffled and topped his ball into the road i had kept mine well this side of it and won in four to five i shan't take any bisques here i said two up at the third tee, my quo vadis darted off suddenly to the left and tried to climb the hill. I headed it off and gave it a nasty dent from behind when it wasn't looking, and with my next shot started it rolling down the mountains with ever-increasing velocity. Not until it was within a foot of the pin did it condescend to stop. Henry, who had reached the green with his drive and had taken one putt too many, halved the hole in four. I took a bisque and was three up. The fourth hole was prettily played by both of us, and with two bisques I had it absolutely stiff. Unnerved by this, Henry went all out at the fifth and tried to carry the string in two. Unfortunately, I mean unfortunately for him, the stream was six inches too broad in the particular place at which he tried to carry it. My own view is that he should either have chosen another place or else have got a narrower stream from somewhere. As it was, I won in an uneventful six, and took with a bisque the short hole which followed. Six up, I pointed out to Henry, and three bisques left. They're jolly little things, bisques, but you want to use them quickly. Bisque dot qui cito dot. Doesn't the sea look ripping today? Go on, growled Henry. I once did a two at this hole, I said as I teed my ball. 
If I did it too now and took a risk, you'd have to do it in nothing in order to win. A solemn thought. At this hole, you have to drive over a chasm in the cliffs. My ball made a beeline for the beach, bounced on a rock, and disappeared into a cave. Henry's pink spot, which really seemed to have a chance of winning a hole at last, found the wind too much for it, and followed me below. I'm in this cave, I said, when we had found Henry's ball, and with a lighted match in one hand and a niblick in the other, I went in and tried to persuade the ostrich to come out. My eighth argument was too much for it, and we reappeared in the daylight together. How many? I asked Henry. Six, he said, as he hit the top of the cliff once more, and shot back onto the beach. I left him and chivied my ball round to where the cliffs are lowest, then I got it gradually onto a little mound of sand, very delicate work this, took a terrific swing, and fairly heaved it onto the grass. Two more strokes put me onto the green in twenty. I lit a pipe and waited for Henry to finish his game of rackets. I've played twenty-five, he shouted. Then you'll want some of my bisques, I said. I can lend you three till Monday. Henry had one more rally and then picked his ball up. I had won seven holes, and I had three bisques with which to win the match. I was a little doubtful if I could do this, but Henry settled the question by misjudging yet again the breadth of the stream. What is experience if it teaches us nothing? Henry must really try to enlarge his mind about rivers. Dormy nine, I said at the tenth tee, and no bisques left. Thank heaven for that, sighed Henry. But I have only to have one hole out of nine, I pointed out. Technically, I am on what is known as velvet. Oh, shut up and drive. I am a bad golfer, but even bad golfers do holes in bogey now and then. In the ordinary way, I was pretty certain to have one of the nine holes with Henry, and so win the match. Both the eleventh and the seventeenth, for instance, are favorites of mine. Had I have one of those, he would have admitted cheerfully that I had played good golf and beaten him fairly. But, as things happened, what happened, put quite briefly, was this. Bogey for the ten is four. I hooked my drive off the tee and down a little gully to the left, put a good iron shot into a bunker in on the right, and ran down a hundred-yard putt with a niblick for three, one of those difficult downhill putts. Luck, said Henry, as soon as he could speak. I've been missing those lately, I said. Your match, said Henry. I can't play against luck like that. It was true that he had given me ten bisques, but, on the other hand, I could have given him a dozen at the seventh, and still have beaten him. However, I was too magnanimous to point that out. All I said was, ten and eight. And then I added thoughtfully, I don't think I've ever won by more than that. Section 2. Pat Ball You'll play tennis? said my hostess absently. That's right. Let me introduce you to Miss... Er, er, oh, we've met before, smiled Miss... I've forgotten the name again now. Thank you, I said gratefully. I thought it was extremely nice of her to remember me. Probably I had spilled lemonade over her at a dance, and in some way the incident had fixed itself in her mind. 
we do these little things, you know, and think nothing of them at the moment, but all the time. Smooth, said a voice. I looked up and found that a pair of opponents had mysteriously appeared, and that my partner was leading the way onto the court. I'll take the right-hand side, if you don't mind, she announced. Oh, and what about apologizing, she went on. Shall we do it after every stroke, or at the end of each game, or when we say goodbye, or never? I get so tired of saying sorry. Oh, but we shan't want to apologize. I'm sure we're going to get on beautifully together. I suppose you've played a lot this summer? No, not at all yet, but I'm feeling rather strong, and I've got a new racket. One way and another I expect to play a very powerful game. Our male opponent served. He had what I should call a nasty, swift service. The first ball rose very suddenly and took my partner on the side of the head. Sorry, she apologized. It's all right, I said magnanimously. I returned the next into the net. The third clean-bowled my partner. And off the last, I was caught in the slips. One love. "'Will you serve?' said Miss... Mm. "'I wish I could remember her surname. "'Her Christian name was Hope or Charity or something like that. "'I know when I heard it, I thought it was just as well. "'If I might call her Miss Hope for this once, thank you.' "'Will you serve?' said Miss Hope. "'In the right-hand court, I use the American service, "'which means that I never know till the last moment "'which side of the rocket is going to hit the ball. "'On this occasion, it was a dead heat.' That is to say, I got it in between with the wood, and the ball sailed away over beds and beds of the most beautiful flowers. Oh, is that the American service? said Miss Hope, much interested. South American, I explained. Down in Peru they never use anything else. In the left-hand court I employ the ordinary Hampstead smash into the bottom of the net. After four Hampstead smashes and four Peruvian teasers— love, too, I felt that another explanation was called for. I've got a new racket I've never used before, I said. My old one is being pressed. It went to the shop yesterday to have the creases taken out. Don't you find that with a new racket you... er... exactly. In the third game, we not only got the ball over, but kept it between the white lines on several occasions, though not so often as our opponents. Three, love. And in the fourth game, Miss Hope served gentle lobs while I, at her request, stood close up to the net and defended myself with my racket. I warded off the first two shots amidst applause, thirty love, and dodged the next three, thirty forty, but the last one was too quick for me, and I won the coconut with some ease. Game, love, four. It's all right, thanks, I said to my partner. It really doesn't hurt a bit. Now then, let's buck up and play a simply dashing game. Miss Hope excelled herself in that fifth game, but I was still unable to find the length. To be more accurate, I was unable to find a shortness. My long game was admirably strong and lofty. Are you musical? said my partner at the end of it. Five love. She had been very talkative all through. "'Come, come,' I said impatiently. "'You don't want a song at this very moment. "'Surely you can wait till the end of the set. "'Oh, I was only just wondering. "'I quite see your point. "'You feel that nature always compensates us in some way, "'and that as—' "'Oh, no,' said Miss Hope. "'I didn't mean that at all. "'She must have meant it. 
you don't talk to people about singing in the middle of a game of tennis certainly not to comparative strangers who have only spilt lemonade over your frock once before no no it was an insult and it nerved me to a great effort i discarded for it was my serve the hampstead smash i discarded the peruvian teaser instead i served two piccadilly benders from the right-hand court and two westminster welts from the left hand the piccadilly bender is my own invention it can only be served from the one court and it must have a wind against it you deliver it with your back to the net which makes the striker think that you have either forgotten all about the game or else are apologizing to the spectators for your previous exhibition then with a violent contortion you slew your body round and serve whereupon your opponent perceives that you are playing and that it is just one more ordinary fault into the wrong court so she calls fault in a contemptuous tone and drops her racket and then adds hurriedly oh no sorry it wasn't a fault after all that being where the wind comes in the westminster welt is in theory the same as the hampstead smash but one goes over the net one must be in very good form or have been recently insulted to bring this off well we won that game a breeze having just sprung up and carried away by enthusiasm and mutual admiration we collected another five two then it was miss hope's serve again good-bye i said i suppose you want me in the forefront again please i don't mind her shots the bottle of scent is absolutely safe but i'm afraid he'll win another packet of woodbines miss hope started off with a double which was rather a pity and then gave our masculine adversary what is technically called one to kill i saw instinctively that i was the one and i held my racket ready with both hands our opponent who had been wanting his tea for the last two games was in no mood of dalliance he fairly let himself go over this shot in a moment i was down on my knees behind the net and the next moment i saw through the meshes a very strange thing the other man with his racket on the ground was holding his eye with both hands don't you think said miss hope to five abandoned that your overhead volleying is just a little severe section three the opening season my dear said jeremy as he folded back his paper at the sporting page i have some news for you cricket is upon us once again there's a nasty cold upon baby once again said mrs jeremy i hope it doesn't mean measles no child of mine would ever have measles said jeremy confidently it's beneath us he cleared his throat and read the coming season will be rendered ever memorable by the fact that for the first time in history of the game you'll never guess what's coming mr jeremy smith is expected to make double figures jeremy sat up indignantly well of all the wifely things to say who was top of our averages last year plumber because you presented the bat to him yourself that proves nothing i gave myself a bat too as it happens and a better one than plumber's after all his average was only twenty-five mine if the weather had allowed me to finish my solitary innings would probably have been twenty-six as it was the weather only allowed you to give a chance to the wicket-keeper off the one ball you had 
"'I was getting the pace of the pitch,' said Jeremy. "'Besides, it wasn't really a chance, "'because our umpire would never have given the treasurer out first ball. "'There are certain little courtesies which are bound to be observed. "'Then,' said his wife, "'it's a pity you don't play more often.' "'Jeremy got up and made a few strokes with the poker. "'One of us is rather stiff,' he said. "'Perhaps it's the poker.' "'If I play regularly this season, will you promise to bring Baby to watch me?' "'Of course, we shall both come. "'And you won't let Baby jeer at me if I'm bowled by a shooter? "'She won't know what a shooter is. "'Then you can tell her that it's the only ball that ever bowls father,' said Jeremy. "'He put down the poker and took up a ball of wool. "'I shall probably feel somewhere behind the wicket-keeper, where the hottest drives don't come.' "'But if I should miss a catch, you must point out to her that the sun was in father's eyes. "'I want my child to understand the game as soon as possible. "'I'll tell her all that she ought to know,' said his wife. "'And when you finish playing with my wool, I've got something to do with it.' "'Jeremy gave himself another catch, threw the wool to his wife, and drifted out. "'He came back in ten minutes with his bat under his arm. "'Really, it has wintered rather well,' he said. "'Considering that it has been in the boot cupboard all the time, "'we ought to have put some camphor in with it, "'or, I know, there's something you do to bats in the winter. "'Anyhow, the splice is still there.' "'It looks very old,' said Mrs. Jeremy. "'Is that really your new one?' "'Yes, this is the one that played the historic innings. "'It has only had one ball in its whole life, and that was on the edge.' The part of the bat that I propose to use this season will therefore come entirely fresh to the business. You ought to have oiled it, Jeremy. Oil! That was what I meant. I'll do it now. We'll give it a good rub-down. I wonder if there's anything else it would like. I think, most of all, it would like a little practice. My dear, that's true. It said in the paper that on the county grounds practice was already in full swing. He made an imaginary drive. I don't think I shall take a full swing. It's so much harder to time the ball. I say, do you bowl? Very badly, Jeremy. The worse you bowl, the more practice the bat will get. Or what about Baby? Could she bowl to me this afternoon, do you think? Or is her cold too bad? I think she'd better stay in today. What a pity. Nurse tells me she's left-handed, and I particularly want a lot of that because little Buxton has a very hot left-hand bowler called, You don't want your daughter to be an athletic girl, do you? Jeremy looked at her in surprise, and then sat down on the arm of her chair. Surely, dear, he said gravely, we decided that our child was going to play for Kent. Not a girl. Why not? There's nothing in the rules about it. Rule 197B says that you needn't play if you don't like the manager. "'But there's nothing about sex in it. "'I'm sure Baby would love the manager.' "'Mrs. Jeremy smiled and ruffled his hair. "'Well,' said Jeremy, "'if nobody will bowl to me, "'I can at least take my bat out and let it see the grass. "'After six months of boots, it will be a change for it.' "'He went out into the garden and did not appear again until lunch. "'During the meal, he read extracts to his wife from "'The Coming Season's Prospects,' and spoke cheerfully of the runs he intended to make for the village. After lunch, he took her on to the tennis lawn. There, he said proudly, pointing to a cricket pitch beautifully cut, and marked with a crease of dazzling white. Doesn't that look jolly? Heavenly, she said. 
you must ask someone up to-morrow you can get quite good practice here with these deep banks all round yes i shall make a lot of runs this season said jeremy airily but apart from practice you don't feel how jolly and summery a cricket pitch makes everything mrs jeremy took a deep breath yes there's nothing like a bucket of whitening to make you think of summer i'm glad you think so too said jeremy with an air of relief because i upset the bucket on the way back to the stables just underneath the pergola it ought to bring the roses on like anything section four an inland voyage thomas took a day off last monday in order to play golf with me for that day the admiralty had to get along without thomas i trembled to think what would have happened if war had broken out on monday could a thomasless admiralty have coped with it i trow not even as it was battleships grounded crews mutinied and several awkward questions in the house of commons had to be postponed till tuesday something some premonition of this no doubt seemed to be weighing on him all day rotten weather he growled as he came up to the steps of the club i'm very sorry i said i keep on complaining to the secretary about it he does his best what's that he taps the barometer every morning and says it will clear up in the afternoon shall we go out now or shall we give it a chance to stop thomas looked at the rain and decided to let it stop i made him as comfortable as i could i gave him a drink a cigarette and mistakes with the mashie on the table at his elbow i had in reserve faulty play with the brassy and a west middlesex dictionary for myself i wandered about restlessly pausing now and again to read enviously a notice which said that c d topping's handicap was reduced from twenty-four to twenty-two lucky man at about half-past eleven the rain stopped for a moment and we hurried out the course is a little wet i said apologetically as we stood on the first tee but with your naval experience you won't mind that by the way i ought to warn you that this isn't all casual water some of it is river how do you know which is which you'll soon find out the river is much deeper go on your drive thomas won the first hole very easily we both took four to the green thomas in addition having five splashes of mud on his face while i only had three unfortunately the immediate neighbourhood of the hole was under water thomas the bounder had a small heavy ball which he managed to sink in nine my own being lighter refused to go into the tin at all and floated above the hole in the most exasperating way i expect there's a rule about it i said if we only knew which gives me the match however until we find that out i suppose you must call yourself one up i shall want some dry socks for lunch he muttered as he sploshed off to the tea anything you want for lunch you can have my dear thomas i promise you that you shall not be stinted the next green is below sea level altogether i'm afraid the first in the water wins honours it turned out were divided i lost the hole and thomas lost his ball the third tee having disappeared we moved on to the fourth there's rather a nasty place along here the secretary was sucked in the other day and only rescued by the hare i said thomas drove a good one 
I topped mine badly, and it settled down in the mud fifty yards off. Excuse me, I shouted as I ran quickly after it, and I got my niblick onto it just as it was disappearing. It was a very close thing. Well, said Thomas, as he reached his ball, that's not what I call a brassy lie. It's what we call a corkscrew lie down here, I explained. If you haven't got a corkscrew, you'd better dig round it with something, and then when the position is thoroughly undermined, oh, good shot. Thomas had got out of the fairway in one, but he still seemed unhappy. My eye, he said, bending down in agony. I've got about half Middlesex in it. He walked round in circles, saying strange nautical things, and my suggestions that he should, one, rub the other eye, and two, blow his nose suddenly, were received ungenerously. Anything you'd like me to do with my ears? he asked bitterly. "'if you'd come and take some mud out for me instead of talking rot.' "'I approached with my handkerchief and examined the eye carefully. "'See anything?' asked Thomas. "'My dear Thomas, it's full of turf. "'We mustn't forget to replace this if we can get it out. "'What the secretary would say. "'There, how's that? Worse than ever. "'I'll try not to think about it. "'Keep the other eye on the ball as much as possible. "'This is my hold, by the way. "'Your ball is lost.' "'How do you know?' "'I saw it losing itself. "'It went into the bad place I told you about. "'It's gone to join the secretary. "'Oh, no, we got him out, of course. "'I keep forgetting. "'Anyhow, it's my hole.' "'I think I shall turn my trousers up again,' "'said Thomas, bending down to do so. "'Is there a local rule about it?' "'No, it is entirely left to the discussion "'and good taste of the members. "'Naturally, a little extra license is allowed "'on a very muddy day.' "'Of course, if—oh, I see. "'You meant a local rule about losing your ball in mud. "'No, I don't know of one, "'unless it comes under the heading of casual land. "'Be a sportsman, Thomas, and don't begrudge me the whole.' "'The game proceeded, and we reached the twelfth tee "'without any further contretemps, "'save that I accidentally lost the sixth, ninth, and tenth holes, "'and that Thomas lost his iron at the eighth. He had carelessly laid it down for a moment when he got out of a hole with his niblick, and when he turned round for it, the thing was gone. At the twelfth tee, it was raining harder than ever. We pounded along with our coat collars up and reached the green absolutely wet through. How about it? said Thomas. My hole, I think, and that makes us all square. I mean, how about the rain? And it's just one o'clock. Just as you like. Well, I suppose it is rather wet. "'All right, let's have lunch.' "'We had lunch. "'Thomas had it in the only dry things he had brought with him, "'an ulster and a pair of Varden cups, "'and sat as near the fire as possible. "'It was still raining in torrents after lunch, "'and Thomas, who is not what I call keen about golf, "'preferred to remain before the fire. "'Perhaps he was right. "'I raked up an old copy of Strummer's with the niblick for him, and read bits of the telephone directory out loud. After tea, his proper clothes were dry enough in places to put on, and as it was still raining hard, and he seemed disinclined to come out again, I ordered a cab for us both. It's really rotten luck, said Thomas, as we prepared to leave, that on the one day when I take a holiday it should be so beastly. Beastly, Thomas? I said in amazement. The one day? "'I'm afraid you don't play inland golf much. "'I hardly ever play around in London. "'I thought not. 
then let me tell you that today's was the best day's golf i've had for three weeks golly said thomas section five an informal evening dinner was a very quiet affair not a soul drew my chair away from under me as i sat down and during the meal nobody threw bread about we talked gently of art and politics and things and when the ladies left there was no booby trap waiting for them at the door in a word nothing to prepare me for what was to follow we strolled leisurely into the drawing-room a glance told me the worst the ladies were in a cluster round miss power and miss power was on the floor she got up quickly as we came in we were trying to go underneath the poker she explained can you do it i waved the poker back let me see you do it again i said i missed the first part oh i can never do it bob you show us bob is an active young fellow he took the poker rested the end on the floor and then twisted himself underneath his right arm i expected to see him come up inside out but he looked much the same after it however no doubt his organs are all on the wrong side now yes that's how i should do it i said hastily but miss power was firm she gave me the poker i pressed it hard on the floor said good-bye to them all and dived i got halfway round and was supporting myself upside down by one toe and the slippery end of the poker when it suddenly occurred to me that the earth was revolving at an incredible speed on its own axis and that in addition we were hurtling at thousands of miles a minute round the sun it seemed impossible in these circumstances that i should keep my balance any longer and as soon as i realized this the poker began to slip i was in no sort of position to do anything about it and we came down heavily together oh what a pity said miss power i quite thought you'd done it being actually on the spot i said i knew that i hadn't do try again not till the ground's a little softer let's do the jam-pot trick said another girl i'm not going under a jam-pot for anybody i murmured however it turned out that this trick was quite different you place a book macaulay's essays or what not on the jam-pot and sit on the book one heel only touching the ground in the right hand you have a box of matches in the left a candle the jam-pot of course is on its side so that it can roll beneath you then you light the candle and hand it to anybody who wants to go to bed i was ready to give way to the ladies here but even while i was bowing and saying not at all i found myself on one of the jam-pots with bob next to me on another to balance with the arms outstretched was not so difficult but as the matches were then about six feet from the candle and there seemed no way of getting them nearer together the solution of the problem was as remote as ever three times i brought my hands together and three times the jam-pot left me well played bob said somebody the bounder had done it i looked at his jam-pot there you are i said raspberry nineteen o nine mine's gooseberry nineteen eleven a rotten vintage and look at my book alone on the prairie and you've got the mormon's wedding no wonder i couldn't do it i refused to try it again as i didn't think i was being treated fairly 
and after bob and miss power had had a race at it which bob won we got on to something else of course you can pick a pin out of a chair with your teeth said miss power not properly i said i always swallow the pin i suppose it doesn't count if you swallow the pin said miss power thoughtfully i don't know i've never really thought about that side of it much anyhow unless you've got a whole lot of pins you don't want don't ask me to do it to-night accordingly we passed on to the water trick i refused at this but miss power went full length on the floor with a glass of water balanced on her forehead and came up again without spilling a single drop personally i shouldn't have minded spilling a single drop it was the thought of spilling the whole glass that kept me back anyway it is a useless trick the need for which never arises in an ordinary career picking up the times with the teeth while clasping the left ankle with the right hand is another matter that might come in useful on occasions as for instance if having lost your left arm on the field and having to staunch with the right hand the flow of blood from a bullet wound in the opposite ankle you desire to glance through the financial supplement while waiting for the ambulance here's a nice little trick broke in bob as i was preparing myself in this way for the german invasion he had put two chairs together front to front and was standing over them a foot on the floor on each side of them if that conveys it to you then he jumped up turned round in the air and came down facing the other way can you do it i said to miss power come and try said bob it's really not difficult i went over and stood over the chairs then i moved them apart and walked over to my hostess good-bye i said i'm afraid i must go now coward said somebody who knew me rather better than the others it's much easier than you think said bob i don't think it's easy at all i protested i think it's impossible i went back and stood over the chairs again for some time i waited there in deep thought then i bent my knees preparatory to the spring straightened them up and said what happens if you miss it i suppose you bark your shins a bit yes that's what i thought i bent my knees again worked my arms up and down and then stopped suddenly and said what happens if you miss it pretty easily oh you can do it if bob can said miss power kindly he's practised i expect he started with two hassocks and worked up to this i'm not afraid but i want to know the possibilities if it's only a broken leg or two i don't mind if it's permanent disfigurement i think i ought to consult my family first i jumped up and came down again the same way for practice very well i said now i'm going to try i haven't the faintest hope of doing it but you all seem to want to see an accident and anyhow i'm not going to be called a coward one two three well done cried everybody did i do it i whispered as i sat on the floor and pressed a cushion against my shins rather then i said massaging my ankles next time i shall try to miss section six the continental manner of course i should recognize simpson anywhere even at a masked ball besides who but simpson would go to a fancied dress ball as a short-sighted executioner and wear his spectacles outside his mask 
but it was a surprise to me to see him there at all. Samuel, I said gravely, tapping him on the shoulder, I shall have to write home about this. He turned round with a start. Hello, he said eagerly, how splendid. But, my dear old chap, why aren't you in costume? I am, I explained. I've come as an architect. Luckily, the evening clothes of an architect are similar to my own. Excuse me, sir, but do you want a house built? How do you like my dress? I am an executioner. I left my axe in the cloakroom. So I observe. You know, in real life, one hardly ever meets an executioner who wears spectacles. And yet, of course, if one can't see the head properly without glasses... By Jove, said Simpson, there she is again. Columbine, in a mask, hurried past us and mixed with the crowd. What one could see of her face looked pretty. It seemed to have upset Simpson altogether. Ask her for a dance, I suggested. Be a gay dog, Simpson. Wake London up. At a masked ball, one is allowed a certain amount of license. Exactly, said Simpson, in some excitement. One naturally looks for a little continental abandon at these dances. Portrait of Simpson showing continental abandon. And so I did ask her for a dance just now. She was cold, Samuel, I fear. She said, sorry, I'm full up. A ruse, a mere subterfuge. Now look here. Ask her again and be more debonair and dashing this time. What you want is to endue her with the spirit of revelry. Perhaps you'd better go to the bar first and have a dry ginger ale, and then you'll feel more in the continental mood. By Jove, I will, said Simpson, with great decision. I wandered into the ballroom and looked round. Columbine was standing in a corner alone. Some outsider had cut her dance. As I looked at her, I thought of Simpson letting himself go, and smiled to myself. She caught the edge of the smile and unconsciously smiled back. Remembering the good advice which I had just given another, I decided to risk it. Do you ever dance with architects? I asked her. I do sometimes, she said. Not in Lent, she added. In Lent, I agreed, one has to give up the more furious pleasures. Shall we just finish off this dance, and don't let's talk shop about architecture? We finished the dance and retired to the stairs. I want you to do something for me, I began cautiously. Anything except go in to supper again. I've just done that for somebody else. No, it's not that. The fact is, I have a great friend called Simpson. It sounds a case for help, she murmured. He is here tonight, disguised as an executioner in glasses. He is, in fact, the only spectacled beheader present. You can't miss him. All the same, I managed to just now, she gurgled. I know. He asked you for a dance, and you rebuffed him. Well, he is now fortifying himself with a small dry ginger, and he will ask you again. Do be kind this time. He's really a delightful person when you get to know him. For instance, both his whiskers are false. No doubt I should grow to love him, she agreed. But I didn't much like his outward appearance. However, if both whiskers are false, and he's really a friend of yours... He is naturally as harmless as a lamb, I said, but at a dance like this he considers it his duty to throw a little continental abandon into his manner. Columbine looked at me thoughtfully, nodding her head, and slowly began to smile. You see, I said, the possibilities. He shall have his dance, she said decidedly. Thank you very much. I should like to ask for another dance for myself later on, 
but I am afraid I should try to get out of you what he said, and that wouldn't be fair. Of course I shouldn't tell you. Well, anyhow, you'll have had enough of us by then. But softly he approaches, and I must needs fly, lest he should pierce my disguise. Good-bye, and thank you so much. So I can't say with authority what happened between Simpson and Columbine when they met, but Simpson and I had a cigarette together afterwards, and a certain thing came out, enough to make it plain that she must have enjoyed herself. Oh, I say, old chap, he began jauntily, do you know, match, thanks, er, whereabouts is Finsbury Circus? You're too old to go to a circus now, Simpson. Come and have a day at the Polytechnic instead. Don't be an ass. It's a place like Oxford Circus. I suppose it's in the city somewhere. I wonder, he murmured to himself, what she would be doing in the city at eleven o'clock in the morning. Perhaps her rich uncle is in a bank and she wants to shoot him. I wish you'd tell me what you're talking about. Simpson took off his mask and spectacles and wiped his brow. Dear old chap, he said in a solemn voice, in the case of a woman, one cannot tell even one's best friend. You know how it is. Well, if there's going to be a duel, you should have chosen some quieter spot than Finsbury Circus. The motor buses distract one's aim. Simpson was silent for a minute or two. Then a foolish smile flitted across his face, to be followed suddenly by a look of alarm. Don't do anything that your mother wouldn't like, I said warningly. He frowned and put on his mask again. Are chrysanthemums in season? he asked casually. Anyhow, I suppose I could always get a yellow one. You could, Simpson, and you could put it in your buttonhole so that you can be recognized and go to Finsbury Circus to meet somebody at eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. Samuel, I'm ashamed of you. Er, where do you lunch? At the Carlton, old chap. I got quite carried away. Things seemed to be arranged before I knew where I was. And what's she going to wear, so that you can recognize her? Yes, said Simpson, getting up. That's the worst of it. I told her it was quite out of date, and that only the suburbs wore fashions a year old. But she insisted on it. I had no idea she was that sort of girl. No, I'm in for it now. He sighed heavily and went off for another ginger ale. I think that I must be at Finsbury Circus tomorrow, for certainly no Columbine in a harem skirt will be there. Simpson, in his loneliness, will be delighted to see me, and then we can throw away his buttonhole and have a nice little lunch together. End of chapter 3